0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders in Cleantech podcast. Each week, our host, David Hunt, speaks to a leading startup CEO, executive, or thought leader in the clean tech sector. Focused on the clean energy and clean mobility transitions, each guest shares the highs and lows of their cleantech journey, their industry insights, and their vision and hopes for the future. Hello, I'm David Hunt, CEO and founder of Hyperion Executive Search and your host for the Losing and Set podcast. I hope you're all well and have managed a little downtime over the summer period and are feeling revitalised and energetic for the second half of the year. A year in which, of course, we've had the dire warnings from the IPCC, which even the uh, hardest uh, climate sceptics must find difficult to ignore. And COP26 is just around the corner. There's so much still to be done, of course. For my part, I'm proud to work with and shine the light on people and organizations that are making a difference, both through the team at Hyperion and through this podcast. This week my guest is Mark Fuchan, CEO of Enesco. Enesco is a market leader in renewable energy, managing the development, design, construction, maintenance, and market optimization of renewable energy, energy storage and energy efficiency projects and assets. The company has actually constructed more than 100 solar farms, while its OM services is, uh, is monitoring more than 24,000 sites. Prior to UNESCO, Mark worked for Centrica, Interconnector UK, Booz Allen and Air Products. Mark held a number of roles, uh, executive roles at Centrica, which included running the international power generation and storage portfolio. He holds a chemical Engineering degree from Cambridge and an MBA from Columbia Business School. Mark is married with three children, enjoys cycling and mountaineering, and has a fantastic career behind him and a lot of opportunities and a lot still to be done ahead. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello afternoon and uh, welcome to Leaders in Clean Tech podcast, Mark. It's a pleasure to have you with us.
1: Well, thanks David. Thanks for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Good. Now, in the introduction, I gave quite a, an overview of Enesco, uh, and uh, I certainly want to dig a lot deeper into what the company does and, and how you've managed change since taking over as CEO back in uh, early 2020. Uh, but before that, can you share a little bit of your backstory, your career, and how you came to be the CEO of Enesco?
1: Sure. Uh, well, I grew up in North Wales, which, uh, has, has, if you know the area, it's a beautiful place, and, and it has two... It is. To, uh, um, to main industry. So it's got, it's got tourism, um, obviously, but also it's a big sense of power generation. So right. the, the, the mountains lend themselves quite well to hydro and the remote, there's a couple of nuclear power stations because of it's remote place. And so really the, the, those were the two op- options for me that were local and inspiring. And, and it was power generation I chose and most of my career has followed that, that track ever since. I actually trained as a chemical engineer, that's how I started okay. off, um, and got into the conventional energy business, working in gas transport and uh, and, and gas power stations. Um, but then I went to the U.S. for a couple of years to study for my MBA. And that was in the 2000s, where the world was really waking up to the climate challenge um, mm-hmm. and the evidence was starting to get irrefutable. And during that time, I got involved in a concentrated solar power startup. Okay. Um, so that was my kind of first taste of renewables. And I think from that point on, the, 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 there's been no turning back. I came back to the U.K., got a job with Centrica, who at the time were being really innovative. Um, I joined to run a carbon capture and storage project. Okay. And they were also running um, some some big offshore wind programs, getting to onshore wind. And so uh, during my time there, I actually did lots of different things, but got involved along the way in just about every power technology there is. So across gas power stations, CCS, onshore wind, offshore wind, energy storage, gas peakers, uh, and nuclear. I was also involved in the nuclear joint venture with EDF. Right. So, kind um, of lots of different things, um, and it was really distributed energy was coming of age towards the end, and that then led to UNESCO. So the UNESCO opportunity came up, and it really excited me because it was a chance to um, to be part of a, an agile organisation that could really make a difference. I'd, I'd worked for kind of a big corporate for a long time, mm-hmm. and the idea of getting into Um, So a, a group that you can get your arms around and really make a difference to really appealed and of course it was beautifully positioned for the Upcoming wave of investment in solar and storage. So that's why I joined
0: Okay uh, again, you, sometimes you think, uh, and I recall when you know in the early days of, of, of UNESCO and, uh, and others. And it's still, I think, important to realise sometimes that whilst it's reasonably established within the sort of world in which we live, it's still a relatively small organisation, certainly compared to you know some of those that you've worked with in the past. Was that an, uh, you kind of alluded to that? But was that an appeal to you again working for an organisation that was? Not a pure startup, certainly, but, but certainly not a, uh, you know, an established or a monolithic sort of organization like uh, some, uh, some that you've worked with in the past.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I think if, if I've been involved with startups as well, and, and the challenge there is you've you just got new resources. You've got to do everything yourself, um, and there's lots of things that kind of stop you achieving what you want to. Um, and the other end of the scale, you know, in a really big organization, you can spend as much time managing the internal system as you can in actually getting things done. Yeah, um, and the sort of size that UNESCO is, with two hundred people going on, um, and you know, r- roughly sort of worth about you know hundred billion sort of organisation, it, it can you, you can get so much more done, um, you've got that sort of sweet spot in the middle.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I certainly like to explore a little bit more of that. Perhaps share a little bit because UNESCO has been quite a driving force in the UK for the deployment of renewables, uh, solar and storage in particular. Um, and, again, just for the audience, perhaps you could share a little bit of the history because you obviously came in, you were in a founder, you've come in, and there's been quite a lot of transition during that period of time. Mm. So perhaps you could share a little bit of the the history of the company and, and, and what the offering was at the point at which you joined the organization.
1: Sure. So Inesco so was, was founded, as you said, it's only, t- it only 10 years ago. So it's quite a young company. Um, but but I, that was actually quite a long way back in terms of the, the solar business. That was pretty much when things got started. So, Enesco uh, was founded um, as a spin-off from SSE to, to really focus on two things. It was the solar, um, the subsidized era where there was yep. lots of both rooftop and ground mount and good, good incentives to do that. Um, and the, the, you know, the founders really saw that opportunity and wanted to um, you know, make it happen. And then similarly with energy efficiency. So we have an, an energy efficiency arm that enables installs to be done under the government's eco scheme. Mm-hmm. And th- those those were the kind of the two beginning pieces of, of the organization. And actually both of them still exist to this day. Um, but we've done some other things along the way. And I think probably the, the key turning point was when subsidies got taken away for solar in 2016, the, the business had to change its strategy. And a lot of our competitors went off overseas Mm. but what unesco chose to do was to branch out into battery storage Um, and that's quite a brave thing to do because at that point the market was very young it wasn't wasn't proven it was very hard to make money out of it Um, and that was but but unesco did a really good job of pioneering that technology um and then uh and so towards the end of that i suppose that was when when i joined uh, where, where solar had sort of dipped off because the, the subsidies had gone. We were trying to make battery storage work, but, but only had sort of limited scale and success. Um, and so it was, you know, time for a refresh. I think the, the other thing I should mention is that Unesco tried a lot of different things. So they, they tried that scale-wise, they were doing everything from residential right up to grid scale. Yeah. Um, and, and so there was a bit of a, you know, one of the challenges when I started was where, where do we focus?
0: Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's always a key factor. And again, I think we touched on this when we spoke before. I mean, I, I first got involved in, in UK solar in 2007 when, again, it was proper cottage industry and, and everything was infinitely more expen- uh, expensive and, uh, and more difficult. But, um, you know, UNESCO really jumped into that period of time when there was a good deal of subsidy support. We deployed in the UK, I think it was about 14, 15 megawatts in a very short period of time. And uh, clearly the subsidies played a significant part in that. And UNESCO clearly took advantage of that. And I think that's one thing that perhaps... Um, from somebody involved in the sector, but but slightly from outside, saw that perhaps the company had a uh, a reputation for one which was focused on the financials, which in itself clearly isn't a bad thing. More so than the mission, but in in what I've seen more recently, and I don't know whether it's just since you joined or why you joined, but there seems to be a bit more of the mission as well as the financials that are important to the organisation.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's often it's, it's a necessity when you're you're starting up and you're building a business from the ground. You've got to be really focused on um you know satisfying the the, the, the investor backers that you've got yeah. and achieving um you know, specific milestones and targets and returns and um, and you know I have absolute admiration for my predecessors for the for the business that they created it's a uh, an uh, esco is, is a is a, is, a, is a great business it's it's um got deep capability in some key markets they're all just about to take off yeah um, but but we're we're also about to grow in scale significantly so um, just sort of finishing off on what I was saying earlier about, about the choices that we had. You know, the the yeah. choices that we've made are that we're going to, we've, we've really rebuilt our solar pipeline again. So we've now got um, you know, a gigawatt and a half of solar projects that are coming up through that pipeline we've been working on for um, you know, the last 18 months. So they're all mm-hmm. sort of ready to go. We're, we, we've kind of kept the battery storage going, and that's great because now it's coming of age and every, everybody needs that. Um, and we've also built a, a, a true end-to-end service, so that we can, when we develop projects, we can deliver everything that follows. So we can we can build those projects for our investors. We can um, we, we can maintain them for their lives, and now we can also trade them in the market. We optimise them. Right. that's a new piece to the puzzle that we added. So so that's the the, the strategy we've got, the direction that we're going. Um, I, th- I think in your point about uh, mission. Um, and value. I, I just think that's that's so important, particularly as you get to that bigger scale of an organisation where um, you know th- there's there's more people involved and everyone really needs to understand their their role in it. Yeah. And also the with all the activity in the industry, um, to looking after our people is, is just just so important. And so I think one of the things that we focused on is is really understanding what is it that makes an ESCO special. Why do people want to be here? And that's important both for our, our partners and investors, but also our people. Um, and so we, we have sort of created this this mission, I think, which, which everybody recognises and, um, uh, and, and likes, which is, which is about enabling that transition to net zero. I think it's, it was almost a sort of um, a shame that we weren't celebrating that before, because it's what the company's all about. Yeah. Having, having come from a company before that was doing great things, but was was involved in, in lots of different, from retail to conventional energy to... But whereas UNESCO is 100% about decarbonisation and, and the transition to net zero. So that's solar power generating low-carbon power, battery storage balancing the grid to enable those things, energy efficiency pulling down the amount of impact we have in our homes and how we emit. And so every single person in the organisation is connected to that. Um, and I think that just brings real... Purpose and meaning to, to work, and it, and it certainly gets me out of bed in the morning. It's, it's, it's definitely a, an important thing for us now.
0: Yeah, 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 no, absolutely. One thing that's, I think, interesting is clearly you, you've obviously had executive roles with a lot of responsibility and, 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 and probably sizable PL uh, previously, but jumping into, as I, I understand your first CEO role, how, how was. How is that? And again, I'm always reluctant almost to talk about COVID because it's kind of boring in some respects. But you can't talk about change without talking about COVID because it's clearly been massively disruptive in a work context. So how have you found that transition to being a CEO? And and what were some of those early challenges, not least of which you kind of joined just that, you know, either the perfect or the least perfect time, depending Mm -hmm. on how you look at it?
1: Yeah, I guess I got a, a double whammy because I was, I was making quite a transition into the CEO post, and also we had COVID uh, to land a month later after I, I started. Um, so, so the first point, a lot of people said, "Oh, you know, no, that's gonna be it's gonna be a challenge." Sort of move you know, people who work well in corporates. It's a very different skill set running yeah. a, um, a, a private equity-backed SME, and uh, you know, will we, we, we'll, I we'll, we'll sink or swim? Um, I didn't find it that big a transition, uh, and I said I didn't find it harder. I think that's probably okay. because the way the power business was within Centrica was it, it sort of become non-core as the company moved away from power generation and, and into sort of services and, and retail um, and and therefore I was able to run it pretty autonomously. So in some ways it, it felt, felt the same. I could build the team in the same way. Uh, I was just released from some of the the you know the constraints of having to keep lots of central functions and audit teams and all of that sort of yeah. thing um, satisfied as as you would in in any you know large PLC so so yeah I I, um, I I sort of professionally I found I was able to do the job effectively but I think um, more importantly personally I just found it so much more rewarding and fulfilling yeah um, I remember asking my HR director um am probably my first week oh I think there's some changes that we need to make and what approvals do I need to, to do this? <laughs> approvals? Just do it. Yeah, and that that was just so so liberating. Um, so that that was the you know the the transition side of things. of course, as you mentioned, um, I, I started in February and then COVID came along in March. And I, I don't think many of us saw it coming. Um, it sort of you know c- came so fast and came out of nowhere. Mm. Uh, but but in some ways it was um, it was good because it gave a catalyst for. For change at a time that we needed some some change, yeah. Um, and and I was well prepared for it because I've been running an international operation previously, uh, which would have been largely done over Teams because, right. um, you know, video conference is the only practical way with cross time zones and all the rest of it. And um, and of course nobody at UNESCO had ever come across it before because it was well we all work in one building. Why would we ever need it? So we we were quite well prepared. Our IT setup was all there. Um, and yeah, just also overnight, we just, as as many did, we just we just switched from being based in an office to being based remotely, yeah. and carried on our business as it was. And there have been advantages with it as well. It's been we're, yeah. we have many many connections with our supply chains and our and our clients, um, and reaching them has it became easier. So for me, as an incoming CEO trying to reach out to lots of my key stakeholders, it was it was quite a bit. It was, it was easier almost having that. That um, ability to go hour by hour all around the yeah. world with
0: different people. Yeah, no, there certainly have been as much as there's clearly tragic circumstances. Certainly, as much good to to come from from the situation. I think what you touched on there is quite probably quite used. Having been used to working with or managing or communicating with remote teams, um, you yourself at least were, were used to that. I think that's one of the biggest uh, you know adaptations that most companies went through, getting used to the fact that you had to communicate differently. And uh, again, perhaps you can share a few thoughts on how go back to that sense of mission and there was change going on and how do you communicate with what is okay still 200 people isn't Centrica but it's still a reasonable body of people how do you share and to um, maintain that level of culture and communication across the organisation when you are now more remote and disparate
1: yeah I mean it's you you can never really beat face to face and I think we we all we've all missed that and so now, now we're able to we do spend more time back in the office. Um, but, but I think one thing that has changed from COVID is, is that rather than always default to trying to communicate face-to-face with large groups, so calling town halls get everybody together, um, uh, one thing I've, I've realized yeah. is that that, that that way of communicating misses out large chunks of the organization. So it misses out all of the field engineers who are out and about, all of the project managers who hmm. are on site. Um, anyone who's not working that day because they, they, they work part-time um, and, and actually moving to the, the way that we did things during lockdown which was um, all hands calls where you get everybody via video conference and you record it uh, or and i've did monthly regular video logs as well all the way the way through to kind of keep people updated what's happening in the business right. and then obviously the, the kind of the, the smaller group specifics of um, of getting together so you know, we're actually carrying on that in, in the same way, even though we have the option to do it in person now. The, the other thing that we, we did during that period was we called breakfast clubs. So we we'd once a week on a, for half an hour before you start on Wednesday morning, just just uh, any topic of interest, generally somebody from around the business talking about what they do or something they do outside work or, or an insight into what's happening in the industry. Um, that was hugely popular and, and most of the organisation would turn up for those. We, we set them up thinking, oh well, it'll be a small following and it's a nice way to keep, keep the conversation live. But actually it turned out um, you know, one, one of the things that gelled us together during those, those weeks and months of being, <laughs> being chained to our, our kitchen tables.
0: Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because I think what has happened is it's enabled many more people to be visible in the sense that, like you say, you know, even if you didn't run it as a hierarchical company when there are town halls, it's still an element of top-down dissemination of, 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 of information. Um, yeah. and, and yet, again, as you say those examples where whoever it might be in a remote world you can just say, well, this is what I'm doing today or this is how I'm impacting on the business or this is how my contribution works in my team, wherever it might happen to be. And I think that's really... Uh, something which a lot of companies have benefited from, and hopefully will continue to benefit from, from exactly that—just having that much more uh, visibility and camaraderie amongst remote teams.
1: Indeed, and then of course there's all the tools that, that go with it. We're, you know, a, we, we tend to use Microsoft Teams, but you know, mm-hmm. there's all the different platforms. But it's, it's not just that video conference bit; it's the it's the um, social network um, yeah. chat functions, um, posts of uh, you know what, what's of, of news items i think that it inc- we've encouraged people to use all of that and and that's been a great tool for connecting the organization
0: too yeah yeah we've i think we've got one channel which it just consists of mainly pictures of dogs and cats and people's <laughs> family situation yeah exactly um there, obviously we've we've seen this summer some real um difficult stuff uh, globally in terms of the impacts of climate change becoming more and more obvious. We've seen the IPCC report um, clearly reflect that and... uh we we're coming up to COP26 and have hopes and aspirations that there's positivity from that. Your company, or UNESCO as you say, are involved in a good chunk, certainly, of the energy transition. Um, I'm going to move on a little bit to thoughts on mobility shortly. But certainly, in terms of the energy transition, you, you cover a lot of the bases there. I and mean, what do you see, or how do you see this path to net zero energy in society and it's difficult to look into crystal ball but what what areas of technology or what business models and what market sectors do you see coming to the fore in the next few years that are really going to make an impact
1: um yeah i'll I'll, uh i'll pick up on that but just before before i do i just want to reflect on the ipc report which you which you raised there and and i found it made pretty scary reading and i Mm. I can't claim to have read every every page of it but just looking through the summary the 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 latest um you know projection so that one and a half degrees warming is is now a best case scenario. It's not a just it's not a central forecast and you know, by twenty fifty we could be two and a half degrees if we don't really get our act together as a as a global community and start start pulling things down. Um, And it's just not that far off, you know, come then, you know, my my, my kids will probably be in the the peak of their careers, but by then it's too late. So it's down to us, you know, uh, uh, leaders and um, people in their careers in the energy sector and beyond, um, you and I and everybody listening to this podcast. So I just think it's such a crucial topic um, and and great that we're talking about it and working out what what the answers may be. Um,
0: Do Do you see that as a privilege as much as a challenge? Uh, I th- yeah, both,
1: no. I think. Um it's 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 quite a sort of weighty privilege if it is one. It's it's one that kind of I I know that in in 30 years whatever the world really looks like then, um you know, my my kids will look to me and say well, why didn't you do more? Yeah. Uh, so I I I feel I want to do everything I can. Yeah. So yeah, to to answer your question on what crystal ball gazing, what what does the future look like? It's it's an interesting one because there are there are some technologies available today that can solve the problem, um, and then there's lots of uh, hoops out there as well, of things that can that can add to that or could could maybe do it more cheaply. So um, obviously you've got fusion where there's been a few recent yeah. breakthroughs. It's pretty exciting. There's a, there's a lot of enthusiasm about hydrogen economy currently. Um, and, uh, and then sort of various sort of emerging techn- new energy storage technologies and that sort of thing. Um, but none of them are certain. Yeah. Um, and so, so it's absolutely right. We have to be investing in those uh, government policies that are supportive of their deployment. But at, at the end of the day, I think we need a, a plan and a design for the system that can work based on what we have on the table today. Uh, and for me... That, that backbone is renewable energy in the form of um, solar and wind, as the as the kind of two key locom power sources, um, storage to balance out the system, yep. uh, to deal with the, the ups and downs of when of weather patterns, um, and then that sort of backbone of the system fueling everything. So the power supplies, obviously, the power for all of our devices that that we use already today. Um, and mobility, so it's mm-hmm. f- uh, powering electric vehicles, um, and heat. So we have to move away from fossil fuel heat, and uh, I would imagine onto electric rather than hydrogen, I think, is going to be the most cost-effective way to do it. So, yeah. so that's my sort of crystal ball of <coughs> how can we come up with an energy system that that meets net, achieves net zero. I think it's one that is all-electric and predominantly wind and solar-driven. That's, that's sort of how I see things. But at the same time, I hope that there'll be some extra contributors to that that make that journey easier and cheaper, but I don't think we can bank on them, and therefore we've got to put all our efforts today into into those currently available technologies.
0: Yeah, I think that was always a huge frustration for me, and still is to an extent, is that People are always looking for society as a whole, or certainly governments for some sort of silver bullet, something you can hang your hat on. And and, and you overlook to some extent or underestimate the capabilities of the technology that we do have and we we do know. And clearly, from my perspective, I agree, you know, solar, wind, storage are are able to make huge impacts. Not that we shouldn't be investing in other things or exploring them, but but we should utilize the best of our capabilities, what already exists. Um, I mean... again that's kind of a bit of a frustration particularly you touched on their sort of hydrogen i mean i think from my perspective hydrogen can play a big part in some big factors decarbonizing heavy industries for example and and sort of as we've seen in sweden recently sort of uh, you know, carbon neutrals it's steel or certainly you know still made without fossil fuels um but then you start to see the things like with electric vehicles and the electrification of vehicles which is so obvious and so already happening and and then people still pushing hydrogen for for, for passenger cars essentially and which which doesn't seem to make much sense it's, it does seem a little bit frustrating but um i guess that's what a little, <laughs> little rant of my own um perhaps touching on because your as you say your experience comes across from a number of areas of uh of power production there's a couple of things i wanted to touch on what one, one is carbon capture because you had some ex- obviously some uh, experience with that you mentioned and we saw recently with chevron uh, you know some some significant financial failings or technological failings in scaling what's achievable on a smaller scale. Um, Again, a lot of people are hanging their hats on solving that by sucking carbon out of the air. But uh, is that an area where you see, or probably from a personal perspective rather than an ESCO, that that we can make some changes? Because like you say, we have to throw everything in the the kitchen sink to this carbon problem.
1: Yeah, indeed. So so I I think the challenge with CCS um, is, as you say, it's it's making it work at scale. The, 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 The components of that... Chain, uh, all, all already exist and proven. We, we can all, all already, um, yeah, um, if if you go for a pre-combustion solution, we, we've already got that technology that can um, you know, produce carbon monoxide and uh, and and hydrogen, and then and then trap the co yeah. to turn, turn the sea CO, carbon dioxide into, into CO2 and, and then we can transport gases in pipelines and we we we've, we've, we've have we've some enhanced oil recovery that's enabled us to store it under the sea better. So all of those pieces are there um, the challenge is, is doing it economically and, and joining all the dots together and, and there'll be some good research programs that have enabled that to, to happen initially pilot scale and, and then building up but I think as I've learned from the the nuclear sector from my time there, when you do a small number of very large projects, the learning curve just, just doesn't, doesn't yeah. materialize in the same way as it does for modular <clears throat> technologies. So as we've seen with you know, mobile phones or solar panels or, or, or batteries, as they're produced in, in their millions, there's this, com- and computer chips as well, there's this learning effect that gets, gets cheaper yeah. and cheaper every time. But when you build one gigawatt plant once every 10 years, it's difficult to get that, so I think that's that's going to be the big challenge for CCS. Um, I think, but with both CCS and hydrogen, they're both going to have their place because there'll be no, um, you know, there'll be some parts of the energy system that you just can't deal with yeah. in any other way, and so they it doesn't matter how much they cost, you've got to use those technologies to, to get to the parts that other other beers cannot reach. Um, but you know, the the I, I, I can't see the cost of them coming down so much that they then undercut the alternatives.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, which reflects back to sort of using the technologies we have as a as a primary function. And and on that, there's a couple of things. Um, heat you, you touched on which we know is a, a big issue and, and likewise I'm favourable of electrification of heat uh, as somewhere as possible uh, and the other is mobility which we touched on. From from ESCO's perspective are there any plans in, uh, to get involved in either of those areas of decarbonisation mobility or heat?
1: Well we're already involved in heat because we have an energy efficiency business right. that, that's mainly involved in the, in the government's eco scheme so, so what we do is we, we connect together the uh, the installers who, who put in place energy efficiency measures, with the um, with, with the utilities who have an obligation to install so many measures, depending on how many customers they have. So yeah. that we're already involved in that chain. And I think that's one of the the main programmes in in the UK, if not the world, that, that is really driving improvements in energy efficiency and reduction in consumption. And um, we're just about to move into a new phase of Eco and this government's got a consultation at the moment, that is, is looking to, to make it a little bit more clever in the way it works and thereby incentivise more measures. Um, so it's it's going to have what we call a whole-home whole approach that means yeah. that um, it, rather than just putting into insulation, you need to put in insulation and other things which all altogether improve the home. And I'm hoping that we'll start to see some more smart technologies coming through, so things like um, heat pumps air Source or ground source, uh,
0: and and solar panels on roofs and that sort of thing, as well as as well as insulation and boilers. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's it, I was going to say. I think efficiency is always again one of those that isn't necessarily as sexy or as uh, high profile as. Uh, electric vehicles or solar panels, but equally, if you, if you don't need as much, so you don't have to make as much, it, <laughs> it solves an awful lot of problems. And uh, again, it frustrates that energy efficiency often doesn't necessarily get the attention that it needs. And there's so much that we can be done, certainly commercially as well on, and domestically, as you mentioned there, in terms of reduction of, of demand um, that perhaps, again, doesn't always get the, uh, the attention it deserves.
1: Indeed. But you're also asking about mobility. And mm. at the moment, UNESCO is not involved in... In mobility or, or charge points and uh, the, the only area we are is in in battery storage and over time i think there's going to be more of an interlink because yeah. when you've got lots of people who need to charge quickly at at, um, at all at the same location so you know imagine a motorway service stations in 10 years where rather than having one ev you've got 50 of them all wanted charged in the same hour then you're going to need a storage solution to, to balance that out. So I, I can see UNESCO getting involved down the line once uh, once, you need, once the challenge is getting the, the power in, in enough volume at the right point yep. in time to the location. I think that's where UNESCO can, can play a role. But I, I don't think we're the right company to be uh, a contractor going out there and installing charge points, which I think is a no, no, main no. opportunity today
0: yeah yeah, yeah. we're seeing people like pivot power and obviously grid serve doing much and uh in the uk and obviously other companies elsewhere about as should say solving that problem of how do you get the power in sufficient quantities and at, wow. at places where it isn't necessarily easy to get it uh and storage clear is a, is a, is a great route for that you touched on something earlier mark around um post solar boom in the uk a lot of companies did sort of hop Overseas to to deploy their skills uh, and capabilities uh, when the UK market um, took a bit of a hit from a from a subsidy perspective. Um, you've worked internationally, and let go so far that I, as far as I've seen, it, at least, you've primarily been a, a UK orientated organisation. Do you have plans for taking that skill set and the business overseas?
1: Well, we, we have a little bit of. International work. So we're predominantly UK, but we uh, we're currently building our third project in the Netherlands for Shell. So we completed two last year, and we're on to our third one, a 30 megawatt site we're doing in in uh, southern Netherlands. But I'm, I'm heading out there next week at long last. Now now it's uh, travel is possible again to see how, yeah. how that one's getting on. Um, so, so we do have some international operations also we, we have a number of assets that we operate in in Northern Ireland which although still part of the UK is part of the all-Ireland market so we've sort of got that foothold in, in that power market as well so I would say we're, we're already in Ireland, UK and the Netherlands uh, we are looking to take that further so we're looking at some uh, new market entries uh, in, in Northern European markets I think I'll just say that for now yeah. So yes, we are looking to, to, to go a step further, and has been successful to date. And, um, and as you may be aware, we recently uh, changed ownership, so we had some new investors who came into the business, and uh, and so we, yeah, they, they and we are, are keen to, to grow an ESCO faster. Uh, and there's plenty, there's lots of opportunity in the UK, but we do think our model is quite transferable to other markets as
0: well. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how has that been? Going back to, I guess, to putting the CEO hat back on again, and some of the challenges we talked about, or some of the opportunities we talked about. In terms of uh, a change of ownership, um, clearly that you know often is a is a plus point because there's a, a new impetus and a new drive and a new resource to support that growth. But uh, again, managing and communicating changes. Um, in uh in a, in a In a backdrop where again change can be uh, seen negatively from an employee perspective if if you know things change dramatically, how has that sort of uh, been from from your perspective of leading that team welcoming on board new investors new owners um, perhaps new mandates and and really you know another hopefully a drive rather than a, a stymie of the business
1: yeah, we've been very fortunate in how things have worked out and the, and the alignment we have with our new investors. They, they, they bought us because they really liked the the strategy and the business model that UNESCO had and wanted us to continue it and to grow it and take it further. Um, so, so our new investors are um, Axiom, who are a, 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 an energy service focused yeah. company, and Arapan is a US-based uh, private equity firm. And you know, th- those guys are... Um, fully supportive of, of what we want to do it's interesting because we, we say there are a number of potential suitors in the process yeah. um, and others wanted to take the business in a different direction they, they liked elements of it and wanted to, 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 to either integrate with, with a parent or to um, or, or to ch- change the strategy and keeping some of it and ch- changing the rest but no. as it happens the successful bidders were the ones who, who liked us just the way we were yeah. which is great for our team we've kept our independence We've we've maintained direction. It's been very much business as usual. I think that's gone down very well with the with the staff, um, and that's helped with stability.
0: Yeah, definitely. And talking about the staff and culture, we we caught up uh, earlier in the week when you were about to hot foot off to do some uh, go karting with the team, which I believe you're <laughs> suffering a little bit. So again, to, 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 perhaps you can share a little bit of thoughts, and because a lot of the people listening to the podcast are in fast growth companies or in companies which are going through through change, uh, any particular sort of thoughts or advice on how you can Maintain and create, you know, that that culture. Going back to that sense of mission and culture and and, and, and unity within an organisation, which is, you know, scaling.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's it's many of the things I I, I talked about earlier about um, creating a clear common purpose. I think has really helped us, uh, and, and and the set of values that, that go with that. So everybody knows um you know what their organization is all about yeah. it's also uh, we, we, when you're rapidly growing onboarding new staff is is such a kind of critical thing to get right yeah um, and we've hired 70 new people in the last year so you know by that a third of our organization w- weren't here before covid and, and don't really know the, <laughs> the history of the business and also haven't ever really got to feel part of it yeah um, because you know b- b- because they've been working remotely at that time and, and yes they've got to know their immediate teammates and people they work with but they haven't felt part of the wider community mm-hmm. and that was why you know just despite the, the challenges of it we were keen to reopen our office um, on a sort of in a managed way with you know with people um, staggering when they were around and to start bringing in some team building events so we did have an outdoor hog roast and then we had the um, yeah, the, the 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 racing circuit I- event last week as well. So we, we just try to do as much, um, bringing people together to, to to just meet each other in person and do the sort of normal things that we used to do pre-COVID as much yeah. as we can within a within a safe and ideally outdoor context. Um, so yeah, I think, I think all of that's been that's been important, um, and uh, obviously for all those new starters, giving them giving the, the time support and, and explaining what we're all about
0: and welcome them on board yeah yeah no, absolutely I think it's a critical thing to uh, to, to to do everything to s- maintain that sense of culture and mission for any organisation whether you're five, fifty, or 500 people or whatever the number might be um, and again it's often uh, it's more challenging the, the, the bigger obviously and the more remote but uh, there are always ways around it, as we've discussed it's been a real pleasure Mark talking to you thanks for sharing uh, a lot of what UNESCO has been and is and, and, and will continue to be and to your thoughts on the uh, path to net zero um always keen to sort of end with a little bit of going back to a personal perspective of what has and does drive you or what supported you in your journey to where you are so whether that's books podcasts thought leaders individuals mentors but but things or people that have really supported and uh, got you to 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 where you are
1: well i've i've, I've been very lucky to work with some amazing people th- throughout my career um, and yeah those are the senior figures that I've been under or, or, but but actually I actually get a lot of my energy from the people immediately around me so so having a, a really strong team that I'm part of um, and, and who I kind of assemble around me to, to lead an organization that yeah. those are the those are the people who are going give me the um, give me the strength and also just across the wider organization UNESCO is, is an amazing group of people and I get energy every day just from um, all the you know the interactions I have, and and you know the the, the great things that, that 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 team produce. So I I always sort of look, you know, to, to my left, right, and sort of deep into the organization. That's that's sort of where I get my my kind of energy and impetus from, rather than from afar. Yeah. Um, but but you did mention this when we spoke earlier, and said, look, is there anything that that others out there might might uh, might take something from? And one one thing I I, I sort of thought back to was the. The Daniel Jürgen series. Um, so he wrote three, a series of books. There was, there was the prize, and then the quest, and then uh, um, and the new map is, is a new one that came out last year. Uh, and th- these are all books about the history of the energy sector. And, and I read right. the early ones a, a long time ago, but I, I found that fascinating as a sort of history lesson in what's come before. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, this is from uh, this is all oil and gas stuff. But that—that that is the history of energy, right from you know when it all started in the 1850s and in the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. And, and I, I always think you can learn a lot from history. And, and it was a real eye opener as how for all of that time of modern history, energy has sat there at the very centre of politics and economics and how the world works. Um, so yeah, anyone who, who kind of want, wants the history from the very beginning, um, and then and then. I think that really informs that tipping point of how do we how do we change things going forward? How do we upend that whole yeah. energy system and do it in a cleaner, greener way? I, 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 I'd say that sort of knowing what's come before is, is a useful backdrop.
0: Yeah, no, I think there's huge learnings for that. And I'll share details of that on the on the podcast episode page. Another one is uh, Vaclav Smill, who's who's again done a lot around the history of, of energy. Comes up quite often for the same reasons. It's really, mm. uh, and I think sometimes we forget that you know it's only 150 or so years that the world is kind of as it is from an energy perspective and it's relatively recent and there was you know phenomenal uh change where with first steam and then oil and we've been here before in terms of energy transitions and i think it's easy to or forget that sometimes but important to look and learn from the lessons of those transitions and how quickly they were unable to happen
1: yeah, the, the only challenge that we've got is that uh, over that 150 years we've had a couple of revolutions that took 50 years apiece. We've got yeah. to do this one quicker. This, yeah. this revolution we've got to be sorted in 20.
0: Yeah, yeah. But uh, we've got, as we've touched on, technologies and people that are committed to the cause and we've all got kids certainly who uh, uh, nag and push and cajole to what what are you doing and uh, supporting businesses that are making a change. So the impetus is, uh, is definitely there and the technology is there. So uh, let's hope we can all... Uh, get to where we need to be and uh, avoid the worst ravages of a 1.5 plus degree world but um, appreciate the efforts that you're doing and your team and uh, appreciate sharing some thoughts with us today Mark